You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our scripture readings for the day are from Psalm chapter 104, verses 1 through 15. That's the Old Testament reading. And then the New Testament reading from Romans 14, 13 through 23. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the pew front in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those if you'd like, or use your phone. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those uh, Bibles as a gift from Trinity. After I read the scripture, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you guys could respond, thanks be to God, after that scripture reading. Our first reading again today is from Psalm chapter 104, verses 1 through 15. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds of his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is the word of the Lord. Our uh, New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 23. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one of whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but is wrong for anyone to make another stumbling stumble by what he eats." It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, I pray now that you would take up your word, that you would wield it for the good of your people, for the unity of your people, and for the glorification of the the supremacy of Jesus over everything, that we would see and magnify and bear witness to the fact that Jesus alone is our king and our judge. And so God, may we see those things, may we marvel at those things, may we live in light of those things together in unity. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I had a job in college that was uh, working a grounds crew. So it was trying to make the campus look pretty. Not really trying to make it look pretty, to make it, keep it from being overgrown. So this involved trimming hedges, it involved mowing large plots of grass, it involved weed whacking, and involved all kinds of various things, which um, if you have any experience with these, those, these things, um, or if maybe you had a dad like this, um, there are very, very strong opinions about how you should weed whack and what direction you should mow in. Um, I did not grow up in a home where my parents wanted or my father demanded um, that the lawn be cut in such a way as to create the crisscross lines that you find, say, at Coors Field. But I have worked for such a person. And I have, having worked for such a person, um, failed to do that because I was not instructed that you should do that. And so while at Wilst at Wheaton, while mowing the lawn... I just mowed back and forth like a normal person, not creating the weird, shiny, pretty lines where it's kind of pretty in one direction, one this direction and the other direction. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did any of you do that with your lawn? You're like, this is what I like to do with my lawn. No? So none of you can relate. Oh, there's one. That's lame. Okay, so... um, and so, uh, but, but there was all kinds of different, uh, it was one of those jobs where uh, you could step on a landmine at any moment. Like you could be doing things exactly as you think you were supposed to do them because you were instructed by the other guy named Joe who was helping you figure out where you're supposed to weed whack and he didn't tell you you needed to do it this particular way. And so you don't do it that particular way. You don't go in, you just trim the edge like this. Um, if you know the difference, uh, when you're doing, say, a sidewalk, and then lo and behold, hold, um, instead of Joe coming to review your work, there's a guy named Larry who comes to review your work, and Larry is very angry because you did not do the job that he thought you should do. And one of the questions that came up in doing this job was like, wait, who's in charge? Is it Joe or is it Larry? Because if it's Larry, then the way I weed whacked was just fine. If it's Joe, then that was terrible, and I have to actually go back and do it all over again. Um, If it was Larry, then it didn't really matter. Just make sure the grass is cut and that you don't miss any spots. Um, If the um, the guy is Joe, then the problem is you've got to like do it at certain angles. You got to do crisscross and do the whole thing where you get little boxes um, and it takes like three times as long. And, uh, and, 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 And the question that arose again and again and again is who in the world is in charge? Is it Joe or it's Larry? Do I do weed whacking the way Joe wants me to weed whack or do I do weed whacking the way Larry wants me to weed whack. And this is surprisingly, at least for me, 
the question that comes to us at the heart of Romans 14. We're, we're looking at a text and, and in God's just incredible wisdom. And, and it's like been a further kind of extraneous proof for God's existence that due to no fault of my own, we've arrived in Romans 13 and 14 at this particular cultural moment. Like when we started Romans, if we just said, hey, we're gonna start with Romans 13 and 14. That wouldn't have made much sense, but let's say we started three years ago with Romans 13 and 14. It didn't fit the moment, really, culturally. But right now, when we're confronted with, from Romans 13, um, what's the role of the magistrate? What's the role of our governors and mayors and presidents? How do we think about government? Um, In a moment, we're really facing that kind of crisis. Where do we arrive? Romans 13. I didn't pick that. It was just like laid out for us like three years ago. Isn't that amazing? And then we get to this moment where everybody's like mean to each other because of all kinds of random, like a piece of cloth over your face. You're like, people are like really mean to one another. Like quit wearing a piece of cloth in front of your face or you must wear a piece of cloth in front of your face. And people are being like Christians, are being dumb about these things. Where do we arrive? Romans 14, issues of Christian conscience and liberty. Isn't God incredible? I don't feel like you're, it's just good. Like we're here needing his wisdom, needing his guidance, needing him to speak to us in this particular moment as a culture and as a church. And what does he do? He brings us to these texts, texts that were mapped out three years ago that we'd arrive here. I'm floored by that. And I pray that this would be a a moment, a a cause for thanksgiving for us as a people that God's brought us here right now. But today we're asking the question at the the root of what Romans 14 is about as it's calling us to um, both kind of understand the nature of Christian liberty, the the nature of our freedom in Jesus and and how we're to live in the light of that freedom, uh, but also even deeper is a call to Christian unity a call to live together with one another in love, to pursue God's best for each other. And at the heart of that text, surprisingly, the heart of that argument for Christian unity is a declaration of answering the question, who's in charge here? Um, and, and I wanna begin today with, with that observation and one other one and think about the significance of it as we work through the argument of this text. We start in verse 10, Um, verse 10 through uh, 12 there kind of function as the center of his whole argument um, for the chapter, Romans chapter 14. And in the center of it is, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then a quote from Isaiah in, in verse 11, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And that text from Isaiah is a promise, a prophetic declaration um, that that Jesus will be, that Yahweh will be the king over all the nations of the earth. That all authority will be his and in the end there will not be numerous factions or numerous kind of rival authorities in this world. Um, There is one absolute authority. Uh, There is one to whom all people, no matter what tongue or tribe or nation or socioeconomic background or whatever language you speak, everyone will answer to this particular throne. 
um, is, is the promise set out in Isaiah that Paul says even now is being fulfilled. And he sums it up in verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, this is not how I would argue for Christian unity. If I were writing a chapter to say, how do I get people to get along with each other? To be honest, this isn't the argument I would use. So, if I were sitting and Paul were to hand this in as a rough draft, he asked me for some notes, I would say, Paul, I don't know what you're doing here. Seems to be counterintuitive. There's much better theology that could ground this unity thing that you're going for here. Like, I know you're, you're going here for the judgment seat of Christ. Doesn't sound very, like, calming and unifying to me. Hey, everybody, live together in unity. Be patient with one another. Because God will judge you all. Just doesn't have, like, a resonant kind of, like, let's hug each other kind of ring to it. Right? If I were arguing this, I would say, God loves all of you. He accepts all of you. Therefore, love and accept one another. Doesn't it seem like a, maybe the argument you'd go for? That's where I would go. That's where I would naturally go. That was actually the thing that stood out to me in preparing for this text. Um, I was just a little bit stunned by, like he's talking about unity. He's talking about dwelling together with one another in our differences. And he doesn't ground that in the love of God. Although I think he could. But instead he grounds it in the absolute authority of Jesus to judge. The fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is our king and our judge. He calls for a kind of unity that depends on the promise that Jesus will judge the earth. I want to think about for a moment the significance of that. Why is that important? Because I think it's vitally important. And here's my attempt to define why it's vitally important that verses 10 through 12 are not uh, a, a declaration of the acceptance of God and the love of God as the ground for Christian unity, but is instead a declaration of the authority of God and the judgment, the promise of the judgment of God as the ground for unity. And here's why. I, I don't think that Paul's argument, in fact, I, I don't think the thing that he wants to us to take away from this chapter is how you live doesn't matter. He doesn't want us to walk out from this and say, each of us, as we make decisions regarding issues of Christian liberty, what kind of things to eat or drink, what sorts of clothes to wear. A lot of you apparently feel an enormous amount of freedom this morning to wear baseball clothes church be blessed and free <laughs> because God will judge you <laughs> now I think that he doesn't want to ground like 
He he doesn't want to argue that, that our freedom to make all kinds of decisions about how to live faithfully in this world, what kinds of music to sing, what what kinds of food to eat or drink. Some of you like McDonald's. Some of you don't like McDonald's. And some of you judge those of us who eat McDonald's. He he doesn't want to ground all of those decisions in a kind of Christian pluralism that says it doesn't matter what decisions you make. It doesn't matter what you do in these things. He doesn't want to take it to a place of saying, hey, God accepts all of you and therefore you should not care about what kind of food you eat or what kind of drinks you drink or what kind of clothes you wear or how you respond to all kinds of other things going on in our culture. Vaccines, that kind of stuff. He doesn't want to ground it in none of these decisions matter. He actually doubles down and says, no, these decisions matter greatly. But but what maybe matters more is how you carry your convictions about these things in the world. In other words, it matters that you be right about these things. But there's a deeper right than merely being right. We'll go there in a minute later. That was a lot of rights in one sentence, but I hope it makes sense to you before you go. Otherwise I failed. Second observation. Paul doesn't tell them to come to agreement. Isn't that weird? Like you would expect Paul to say, hey, we're supposed to dwell together in Christian unity under the authority of Jesus. Therefore, over these issues, I want you to sit down, pour yourself some whiskey if you have the liberty to do so. If not, have some tea. Sit in a circle and hash all this stuff out. Refuse to get up until you come to complete agreement about how this thing should go and how you should respond to all of these various issues that confront us as Christians in this day and age that go beyond what we can find of God's commands and God's law. Come to agreement. I mean, after all, in other places, he says things like, oh, that you would be of one mind. Like he tells the Christians that they should think together, that they should Um, work together to think the same way about the world, to think the same way about how they should live under the authority of Jesus and in light of the gospel. But what's fascinating to me is here, he doesn't say to them, hey, I know all of you have disagreements about whether or not you can eat bacon, whether or not you could eat a steak that came off of a cow that was sacrificed to an idol. So what I want you to do is I want you to sit down and hash it out until you can all be of one mind and be in agreement. He doesn't do that. Instead, he tells them, I want you to live in unity with your disagreements, which is terribly frustrating because I would way rather argue with you and win the argument, obviously, so then we could be unified. But this isn't what Paul tells them to do. 
tells them to dwell together in unity, to bend towards one another, to refuse the temptation to judge one another or to despise one another um, as everyone is seeking to live within convictions before God, grateful to God for his kindness, grateful to God for the gifts that he gives. Um, Some will be free to enjoy um, all kinds of liberty and others um, will will feel constrained in certain ways. They can't um, say eat certain foods or drink certain drinks or do certain things um, um, as they live before God because their conscience would be seared by doing so. And what he tells everybody is not, hey, sit around and argue until you can all agree as Christians. No, he says, live together in unity and gentleness and kindness, bending towards one another, seeking to care for one another, refusing to judge one another and condemn one another, refusing to despise one another. Now, why does that matter? I, I think it's not that being of one mind doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that the argument doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that like trying to move closer and closer together as we think about moral and ethical issues and how to live faithfully in this particular cultural moment. It's not that that doesn't matter. It's just that it doesn't matter more than anything else. You see, what matters most to Paul right now is how do I get these Christians who are about to face um, these particular temptations to condemn one another, to despise one another, how do I get them to put that aside and just worship together and eat together and love one another? Which is the precondition for ever arriving at one mind. In other words, everyone in unity are arriving at the same opinion about things that go beyond the explicit commands of Scripture is of less importance for Paul than those who arriving at different, at different convictions about those things, being able to dwell together as the family of God, caring for one another, loving one another, and pursuing one another's good. I think that's the significance of just the simple, obvious observation that he doesn't call for unity grounded in, hey, work these things through and come to the right answer. But instead calls them to to live and worship together despite their differences in these things. That, That he grounds this unity not in the acceptance of God, but he grounds it in the authority of God. He's not saying these decisions don't matter. He's saying they do matter. But what matters more is how do you carry those decisions? How do you carry your Christian liberty? How do you carry your Christian convictions? as God has called you into a church, this particular church, with these particular people? How do we worship together and love one another and share meals together? Many of us educate our children together. How do we do that when everybody keeps arriving at at the the wrong decisions about stuff? You guys know what I'm talking about. Those people over there. 
They got all the wrong convictions. I can't eat with them or drink with them. I, I despise them. Well, those people over there think they can just go willy-nilly, live however they want. Condemn them, judge them. Paul says, hey, in this particular community, with these particular brothers and sisters, with all kinds of different Christian convictions, as as we all seek to live before God, as we all seek to live faithfully before God, making a variety of very intentional decisions about how to react or to respond to different political circumstances, different dietary circumstances, um, different health circumstances. God's concern is to call us to live in such a way that we refuse to condemn one another and despise one another. We can embrace one another. We can sing together in the presence of God. We can break bread together. We can love one another and we can seek in all of those variety of decisions to pursue one another's good. With that being established, I want to walk through how do we do that? What will that look like? As Paul kind of lays that out for us here in the second half of chapter 14. And he begins with, um, actually, before I do that, I want to, you know, when you look down your notes and there's an extra point there that you, suddenly realize it's really important, you need to make it. I'm gonna go ahead and make it. One of the difficulties of this particular day and age, uh, particularly as we compare it to the, the particular historical circumstances Paul's writing into. So, so if you remember from last week, if you remember for as we've been talking about Romans, um, one of the, the historical conditions that's unfolding um, in Rome and in the Roman church is that Nero, um, during the first kind of Half of his reign is a really good guy. He's, he's kind of pushing for um, all kinds of, of economic flourishing. All kinds of great things um, are happening in Rome. There's more freedom than the church has, in, has had um, in Rome. The, the Jews are actually being welcomed back. He's rescinding orders in which Jews were banned from Rome. Um, they were sent out from Rome. They weren't allowed to live and dwell in Rome. And so um, one of the things that's happening now is he's rescinded all that is that Jewish Christians, Jews in general and Jewish Christians in particular, are returning back into Rome and therefore returning to the church. And some of these Roman, Roman Christians have particular scruples about whether or not you can eat meat. Now, why would they have scruples about eating meat? Um, particularly because essentially any meat you would buy and cook, probably smoke, and I don't know if they smoked it, but they should have, um, uh, cooked and eaten in Rome, um, was likely to have come from a marketplace where um, uh, the cow that that meat came from um, had been sacrificed to an idol. The main kind of, if you want to go to the butcher shop, there was no like section of the butcher shop where you could go and say, hey, give me the non-idol sacrificed brisket. All they had was idol sacrificed brisket. So Roman Christians, Gentile Christians had no problem with that. I mean, I don't care what happened. Idols aren't real. Like, I'm not worshiping that God by eating this brisket. I'm giving thanks to God as he gives me this delicious brisket that falls apart on my fork um, with just the right amount of sauce and this rub that had coffee in it. Um, like, the, I, I, as I eat this meat, as I enjoy this meat, I just give thanks to God. I don't really, the, the idol thing, this has nothing to do with me worshiping idols. 
Um, meanwhile, the Jewish Christians are returning to Rome and all they think, as soon as, if they were to eat a bite of that brisket, they are convinced they'd be participating in the worship of idols. And so Paul says those who are free to eat that meat, they're the stronger brother, they're, 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 they're embracing and with gratitude their liberties. Um, and yet there are brothers and sisters who are returning to your church that if they were to eat that meat, in fact, if they see you eat that meat, um, uh, they believe, their conscience is convinced that they're participating in the worship of idols. They're worshiping false gods. Um, in other words, this issue wasn't simply an issue of offense, like they're emotionally kind of have a bad feeling about what you're doing. I'm like, they, they don't like how you said that or they don't think it's necessarily wise for you to eat that meat. Um, no, it's, it's a kind of conviction. In fact, the two words that he uses here, stumble, um, uh, they're starting in verse 20, but also grieved, the, ver- the, the, the word that's used there in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved, um, grieved is not just like he felt bad. Um, grieved here has to do with the, the, the word that's translated there, grieved by the ESV, is a word that carries with it the meaning of um, they're unraveled, they're undone. Um, they're, they're crushed and destroyed. And the word here for stumble, um, it, it's the, the same word to, that Paul uses in chapter 11 to describe the stumbling or the falling of Israel. Um, that they, uh, that in other words, this stumbling isn't just to like, oh, kind of give me pause or trip me up that you're eating McDonald's today. Um, or, or I'm offended that you said that that way. Or I'm offended or I'm, I've kind of got my feelings hurt a little bit um, that you're eating something that I don't think is healthy for you or good for you. No, this is a soul destroying grief. It is a stumbling over um, the idea that now I'm somehow free to worship idols or I should worship idols um, and I should participate in the worship of idols. Um, and so the, the, the concern that Paul's raising is these Jewish Christians are coming back and if you sit them down at the first church potluck and you serve the brisket that was just sacrificed to Zeus um, a few days ago and they know that that meat and they associate that meat with, with sacrificing to Zeus and now all of a sudden they see the worship of Jesus as just some other expression of of, of, of worship alongside the worship of Zeus and alongside the worship of Apollo and ex- alongside the worship of all these other Greek god, Roman gods and goddesses. Um, if they see that happen, their souls will be destroyed. With that as a historical background, like we see three temptations that Paul's addressing here, at least kind of lay in the background. First, um, the temptation to legalism, which is the legalism that these Jews are bringing into the church, which is the temptation to add to God's commands, to go beyond what God has commanded and to judge people, to evaluate people along not God's standards, but your own standards. And so the problem that Paul's addressing is these Jews are coming in um, and though Christians, by the order of Jesus, by the way, in the book of Acts, are free to eat this meat. Free to eat bacon, praise God. Free to eat all of it. The legalist comes in and says, no, there are commands that go beyond the text of scripture go beyond the explicit commands of Jesus, that go beyond um, the the ethical norms established by Jesus. 
and I'm going to judge you. In fact, I'm going to evaluate you on the basis of those standards, which if we're just honest, I invented, or me and my buddies invented, and I'm going to condemn you or uh, acquit you on the basis of extra biblical standards. On the flip side of that problem, and it's actually a group of people that Paul's not addressing in this text, um, but actually I think makes us talking about these things pastorally difficult. Because I think it's the preeminent problem of our day, particularly among Christians, is libertinism. So if legalism adds to the law of God, libertinism subtracts from the law of God, from the commands of God. Libertinism says it doesn't matter how I live or it it, it selectively matters in these categories, but it doesn't matter in these categories. And and in our day, the, the problem feels less like, or maybe just in this particular cultural place, maybe in different parts of the country, it's different. I... I've been around people who live with a kind of extra-biblical legalism, but it seems to me that the spirit, at least among Christians in our city, is not one of primarily one of legalism, but of libertinism, subtracting from the demands of God, the commands of God. And third, the other people, in fact, I think the primary people that Paul is speaking to here those who basically get the balance right. That they understand the freedom that God has given them in Christ. They understand that they don't live under any man-made laws. They live completely under the rule and the authority of Jesus. They're answerable only to the authority and the rule of Jesus. Um, but they have a particular temptation um, that they, these, uh, these Jewish Christians who are returning to the church, who are bringing with them a kind of extra biblical set of scruples or concerns um, or, or, uh, or, or judgments about what right and wrong is, um, judgments that would destroy them, um, judgments that would, they couldn't eat that brisket and give thanks to God, or that friend of yours who can't drink um, that beer and give thanks to God for it, um, or, or that friend who can't live with a certain kind of liberty and in that liberty give thanks to God for it. And the temptation for those Christians is to look at those other scrupled Christians and despise them. To look down their nose at them. Those people, they think they have to do this. They, they can't even eat brisket. They just eat carrots and potatoes all the time. It's lame. Stewed potatoes too. It's the worst. Without meat juices on them, which is the only thing that makes potatoes even tolerable. Fry them in fat or stew them in beef stew. They just have potatoes with carrots because they can't eat brisket. They're too holy, too good for brisket. So there's despising going on. So those three temptations, those three positions kind of lay themselves out before us. And how you know kind of what your particular temptation is um, as you think about this text is what do you do with this text? Is the, is the pinch point for you 
If those Christians over there just knew that that actually matters, if they don't do this, or if they do do this, they're failing to love people, or they're failing to live faithfully in the world. They're compromised Christians. If they don't live this way, wear this kind of shirt, um, or or get the vaccine, or don't get the vaccine, um, or or take whatever issue you want, you make a a measure of Christian righteousness, or standing before God, um, something that is not explicitly commanded in the scriptures. If that's where you are today, if that's what you struggle with in this room, then your, your, your condition is like that of those Jewish Christians returning to Rome. If you're in this room and you hear at the bottom of this text primarily a statement, a declaration that how you or the kinds of decisions you make around those things don't matter at all. Who cares? Live however you want. Make whatever decisions you want. Who cares about like what, what color your t-shirt is or, or how you dress on a Sunday or what kind of music you listen to or what kind of music we play on a Sunday? Who, who cares on what you eat for dinner or lunch? Who, who cares about what kind of car you drive? Like, none of those things really matter. Like Live however you want because Jesus has died for our sins. Then your particular temptation is that of the libertine. And thirdly, those of you who you love the law of God, you, you want to live under the commands of God, but you also understand that the gospel gives you enormous amounts of liberty and freedom. In fact, the, the fundamental note, Paul tells us in Galatians, is Christ, if it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free, you, you love the liberty that God has given you in Jesus, um, and your um, fundamental bent is to look at those who don't embrace those liberties like you do and to despise them, to speak ill of them, to think you're morally better than them or stronger than them. If they would just get it, to flaunt your freedoms in front of them in such a way that crushes them and destroys them, then you're much like the people that Paul's most directly addressing in this text. And your warning is, do not despise your brother for whom, or sister for whom Christ has died. Don't do it. Don't despise them. Don't look down on them. Don't think less of them. Refuse to break fellowship with them. Refuse to say, I can't even be in the same church as them or in the same parish as them. Well, the scriptures leave us room to navigate these things as Christians before God. Pursue unity and love, not sameness. And if I could just give a particular word of warning, um, our particular tradition, being the reformed one, reformed tradition, or conservative reformed tradition, you can add a bunch of adjectives on there if you want. Awesome conservative reform tradition. Dominant, amazing. Make all the things happen. We have a particular bent. I was having dinner with uh, a family in our church um, probably a month ago now. We were talking about 
um, as you go to different, as you experience different kinds of churches, um, and I would say here Bible-believing, kind of evangelical-ish um, churches that are committed to the authority of Scripture, um, as you go to different kinds of churches, there's, there's all kinds of ditches, but there's two in particular ditches. Um, one that would say like, hey, precision on doctrine or precision on um, ethical judgments is unimportant. So we're not really gonna talk about those things. We're not gonna emphasize those things. We're overall just gonna emphasize, hey, how do you live better in the world? Um, it kind of can, can fall into a ditch that's kind of marked by, well, the kind of libertinism that we're talking about in this text. On, on the other side, and, and I would say that's not the ditch we're, we're prone to. So if you're worried about that, um, I don't think that's where most of us are sliding. Might be some of you in here, probably are. Maybe over on this side of the room. Um, for, for most of us who, who are, have been raised in or drawn to kind of a personal disposition towards um, a more reformed Christianity, confessional reformed Christianity, um, our bent is the, is the other ditch. It's to so emphasize, say, doctrinal precision which I, I love doctrinal precision. I'm not saying doctrinal precision is a bad thing. It actually matters greatly. But what matters more is how you carry that doctrinal precision. Does that make sense? At least according to Paul here. Um, I, I think ethical precision, understanding what right and wrong is. How do we navigate this particular cultural moment in such a way that we're faithful to Jesus and we can discern when we should be saying no to the culture, when we should be saying yes to certain things, um, kind of navigating all of those pressures that surround us. I think they're vitally important. They matter deeply. But, but our particular temptation, I think, within our tradition is to fall into the ditch that says, if you don't land precisely where I land, if you can't articulate um, with as much precision, kind of a, a theological clarity like I can, um, then it is to despise or look down on our brother or sister. Paul is attacking that in this text. Okay? So please don't mishear me. In fact, one of Paul's points in this text is these decisions matter. Whether you eat the brisket or don't eat the brisket, as you live before God, they matter greatly. But whether you get the vaccine or don't get the vaccine, as you live before God, they matter greatly. But do not despise your brother who lands in a different place on these issues. Do not condemn your brother or sister who lands in a different place on these issues. As you pursue doctrinal precision to understand the scriptures, to know God deeply, to be able to describe him faithfully and biblically and who he is and what he's like in the world, and in history and in scripture, Oh, give thanks to God that he's spelled these things out, that he's articulated these things. Oh, I, I love the Westminster Confession. Please don't mishear me. And I think doctrinal precision matters and we should constantly be pushing for more clarity about not, not to be right, not to like beat everybody else up, not to separate from people because I wanna know God. 
I love him. I want to see him. I want to delight in every facet of his character and what he's done for us and the promises he's made and how he's instructed us and in how to worship. How he has he called us to think about his law and, and all the different varieties um, of, of angles on systematic theology. But as people are on different places, different different kind of moments in trying to discern what's true and right and good, as they seek to faithfully live before God, do not despise your brother. Eat together. Love one another. Have the arguments. But they shouldn't be arguments that end with, like, I'm out. They shouldn't with joy and thanksgiving as everyone is seeking to live faithfully before God, trusting in him, relying upon him, listening to his word, faithfully committed to what he says in this book. And the only way that's possible, the only way to do all of that stuff, to, to fight against the impulse to say, how I live doesn't matter, the decisions I make about these particular issues don't matter, to avoid that and to avoid um, the, the, the decisions I make about things that go beyond the text of Scripture, um, uh, that, these, uh, that these things um, matter so much that I'm, 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 not, I'm not willing to be in fellowship with or in church with or in small group with, people who arrive at different places than me. The only thing that will keep us from those two problems which Paul condemns Verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You live before God. You will be judged by God. Your brother will be judged by God. Your sister will be judged by God, not by you. Like there won't be like a, a, a time out like in, before the judgment seat of Jesus where Jesus says, you know what? Before Brady stands up here to be evaluated, Hannah, will you come on up? I need a break. And I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and judge and condemn. Brady, thank you. I'll be right back. Like there's not gonna be that moment. Like how do you avoid kind of just living as though none of these things matter? Live before God. Live before God. How do you avoid thinking that you're kind of got the corner on all these things that go beyond what God has commanded us in his word to judge and evaluate and despise other people? Live before God. Live before him. And the fruit of doing that will be that you would refuse to do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble, to be destroyed by your liberty. It will free you to stop condemning and judging those who've maybe landed in different places with regards to what they're free to do before God and not to do before God. And it will drive you to understand this book, these words. 
to live faithfully and with conviction, seeking to obey God in wisdom, seeking to obey every single word that he says and not any words that you add to it. And at the root of it is a call as this community to bear witness to, to celebrate together, to be reminded of, to be marked most deeply, unified by a deep abiding passion for the supremacy of Jesus, his absolute authority over all things, the regular reminder and awareness that he alone sits as Lord and judge. Not me, not you, not Hannah. Jesus and Jesus alone. This will drive us together to pursue one another's good. This will drive us to be deeply intentional about all of those decisions that we have to just make sense of in this world. Um, Not to say they don't matter, but to say, no, they absolutely matter. And scripturally, there's room to land in different places. Because of that, we can love one another, we can pursue one another's good, we can break bread together, we can eat together, we can sing together, we can worship together because Jesus himself is Lord and King. So I invite you now to pray as we prepare for communion. Father, what a precious reminder at the heart of this text that we should look at one another and behave towards one another as to those for whom Christ died. how quick we are to be haughty and proud. How quick we are to despise, to envy, to judge. How prone we are to put ourselves in the seat of judge and king. Um, As we look at those for whom you died, you purchased, you washed, you cleansed, you forgave. So God, in your mercy, keep us from these things. God, may we live diligently under your word. May we long to obey you, to seek your face, to worship you, and to dwell together in unity with those who are trying to do the same thing. In your name we pray, amen.